Hi, I'm Billy Shore. This is Add Passion and Stir in Washington, D.C. today with my sister, Debbie Shore, co-founder of Share Strength. Deb, thanks for being here. Hi, everybody. And two incredibly successful people in this town. What a treat. Ashok Bajaj, who is the founder of the Knightsbridge Restaurant Group, which most people know as Rasika and 701 and Bombay Club. And how many restaurants now, Ashok? Uh, I have 10 restaurants now. Wow. Absolutely incredible. Bravo. And you started oh, in this town 30 years ago. 30 years ago. Incredible. And Cal Zimmer, who I've actually known for a long, long time, the founder. I have to make of, it sound no, it's a long so time. Long. <laughs> the founder of an amazing organization, and uh, you've been at it for 25 years, 25. Uh, called First Book, which gets books to kids, not just in the United States, but all over the world. That's right. That's awesome. great. Yeah. Um, so one of the things we always talk about on Add Passion and Stir is how people kind of come to their passion and the degree to which it's really, you know, kind of uh, at one with who they really are in their life. Clearly, you've both managed to do that. I would think of Debbie and I as similar examples, but uh, Ashok, you were born in India, in uh, Delhi? Yeah. Uh, and then how do you come here and be the, literally the most successful restaurateur in Washington, D.C.? Uh, where, where did that start? Where did you get the idea? I think you were with a restaurant, with a hotel group, the Taj, for a number of years. That's correct. So uh, after high school, you know, back then, all Indian parents want their children to be a doctor, engineer. That's their dream. And I didn't want to be a doctor. I wasn't that smart enough to be a doctor, and I kept saying to them, I don't want to be a doctor. You, so you said you weren't gonna be a doctor. What did you say you were gonna do? I, you know, at 16 years old, you don't know really right, what you course. want to do. You're trying to find yourself. And um, so my uncle, who will occasionally will take me to the hotels with him um, and to eat for lunch or dinner, and I always liked that side of hospitality, and I said, feels good. Um, and I said, how about if I do this? join the hotel and so I end up joining the hotel group as a trainee and then after completing that Taj group was opening their first hotel in uh, New Delhi so I joined the Taj group and then after a few years working with them I realized I wanted to do something more I did just didn't want to do restaurants and here I am 30 years later I'm still doing restaurants with 10 restaurants <laughs> yeah it was very difficult to get a restaurant space initially, especially for an Indian restaurant. Because so you had it in your mind you were going to open your own restaurant? Oh, yes, I yeah. did. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, at that point, I have not been working in London, and I was consulting for, the you know, small hotels and restaurants. And I wasn't really enjoying doing that. And I, uh, so and I said, no, I need to be doing something on my own. It's been a year and a half now by this period. So I came here and I found a site, but you know it was very hard to get a restaurant site for an Indian restaurant. People were saying, "Oh God, you know, Indian restaurant is going to smell. My lobbies, I'm not going to get tenants." And and it was, and the only one that existed, I bet, was at Woodley Park. Am I right? Wasn't I that like the original Indian restaurant in Washington? That's well, no, what I heard. The, I actually never went to the Woodley Park one, but I, I there was the Bombay Bombay Palace on K Street. The Bombay right. Palace, right, and, right, right. And uh, and then and there was one in Georgetown. I can't remember the name uh, of the restaurants. And I said, no, 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 this is not what I'm trying to do. I want to do really high end restaurant. You know, landlords didn't really understand what high end Indian restaurant is going to look like, feel like, smell like. And I said, look, you know, it's not going to smell like, you know anything in the lobby. I said, we could put a nice exhaust. So this landlord uh, who owned the Bombay Club building, I asked him, I said, why don't you go to London? Look at this restaurant, which I managed for five years. See if it feels good to you. And if it does feel good to you. And that was the beginning. So 
That was the way, and that was very hard. I have to say that it took me a year. Nowadays, you know, it's a little yeah. bit different. Yeah. Yeah. So you brought, so. you flew this person to London. I did. That's amazing. Yeah, I did. Just to Great. give him an example. Yeah, give him an example. Go Love eat that. there and see that. You know, but it's you know that should have told him right there. He's working with the right guy, right? Yeah. I mean, you come back and you know, I have a three hours meeting with him. I actually had no idea what he said, but he said, "I'll give you this place." That's <laughs> that's yeah. great. Tell me, Shoka, as you were talking about uh, opening your first restaurant, and I think it was the landlord or somebody saying, yeah. you know, you're being concerned about the smell of Indian food yeah. here. Uh, did that Was that something that you took personally? Was that just like a business decision? Did you understand what they were saying? Uh, I understood what they were saying, but I think uh, the appreciation of Indian food was not there. There were hardly any Indian restaurants in the United States 30 years ago. So... What they were, they were small restaurants either in the basements or not properly vented. And so when I was trying to I was trying to go into the A class buildings, they were reluctant to give me the space. So I understood my they job just had this preconceived notion of preconceived what an Indian restaurant is going to be. Then it became my job to educate them. Because you had but a vision, a different I had, vision. Yeah, I had, I, it became my job to educate them, saying, look, it's no different than Italian or Spanish cuisine. Mm-hmm. We all use garlic and onions and different spices. Right. Uh, so it became my job to educate them. And I think what I found in this landlord, who was a Belgium, who used to go to London a lot, he understood uh, what I was trying to do, but he was still reluctant, okay, because he has to lease the building. So, did you know in advance that was going to be your job to educate them, or I mean, did you did you sense that, you, I, or did that surprise you? No, it was a job. I used to have a small cards in my uh, in my pocket. I always to write what to order when you go to Bombay Club. Okay, <laughs> so because I had opened Seven O One by then. Uh-huh. Okay, Seven O One was very successful from get go after a year or so after the war got over, and um, and I used to write because oh. We love the place, but we don't know what to order there. Yeah. So I used to, so for me, uh, educating the landlord was a bit of a surprise. But I thought all these people who will be well traveled, and I'm close to the uh, old executive building and so on. But um, educating the the customer, I knew I had to do that because there was not awareness of Indian cuisine then. Yeah. Well, you've succeeded at it. Well, Kyle, your parents, uh, I assume, didn't want you to be a, a, doc- a doctor, but wanted you to be a lawyer, which you were for a while. Well, I was for a while, but really it was a disappointment to them. But let me first say, I love hearing your story <laughs> because anytime you can hear uh, an entrepreneur uh, talk about what they've built, it's very inspiring. Well, thank you. Even the struggles for the rest well, of us. Well, struggles are the one when you look back at 30 years and say, God, can I do this again? You know, yeah. and, and sometimes you say, I, I don't know whether I have this <laughs> energy to do this again. You know, I used to stand outside the building uh, where the Bombay Club is, and I said, This is where I'm going to open my first restaurant. Right. And he will come and says, What are you doing here? You come here almost every day to see it. <laughs> stand and I said, there. <laughs> Yeah. And I said, I want to open my first restaurant here. He says, What restaurant? And, um, and then I sort of friended him, and uh, then uh-huh. it's then you know it was the rest is history. The rest is history. Yeah. Um, how about your path, Kyle? How did you go from being a lawyer well, to you know, start being an entrepreneur on the social I entrepreneur think, side? Uh, my folks were actually really lefties, and in Appalachia, that wasn't uh, a very common <laughs> formula, and. They were not delighted when I went to law school because they thought that because of the student loans, et cetera, et cetera, that I would be sort of lost forever. 
uh, into corporate law and, you know, whatever it would take to get claw my way out of the uh, law school debt. And so it was, uh, you disappointed your parents and I disappointed mine <laughs> uh, for different reasons. And I, uh, uh, you know, so it took me, I, I did practice law for a while. And uh, that was great training ground. You know, I learned a lot about how business works and how contracts work and how, you know, what it feels like on the for-profit side of the aisle that have been invaluable as we've set up first book over all these years. And, you know, because you, you're, whatever experiences you have, you, uh, you're that much smarter when you're walking into the next one, I think. And, and uh, so, oh, so say yeah. what first say how how did first book come about and tell us what it is. Well, first book came about uh, in the late '80s and early '90s. I start I was practicing law and I started. Uh, it was a tough period for Washington. It was the crack epidemic, and you guys remember this as well as I do. And and. Um, I, I guess because of my DNA, I felt like, uh, you know, I've, it was time for me to roll up my sleeves and get over and do something. So I started volunteering after work at Martha's Table, which at uh -huh. the time was a little teeny soup kitchen. Now it's right. uh, Goliath. But uh, and when I was over there, I every time I would go in several times a week, the place would be filled with, you know, 30, 40, 50 kids from the neighborhood, from the area. And they were just looking, they were doing everything right. You know, they were looking for a safe place. They were looking for adult intervention. They were, of course, looking for food. And, um, and I kept thinking that even though I'm certainly not a teacher, that those hours could be more important and more impactful if I had books, if I just had books. And at the time, I didn't even have kids, you know. So I started with Peter Gold, who you know well, um, Peter linked arms with me and Liz Arkey, uh, the three amigos, and we yep. started peeling back the publishing industry and trying to understand it from a corporate design perspective and say, why are books 18 bucks a piece? And why aren't they, why aren't there bookstores in these neighborhoods? And, you know, just peeling back the elements of, uh, of the need. And that's kind of how it started, but it's come a long way. And now you've then. put 175 million books into the hands of kids in 30 countries. Wow, we have, and that's pretty which yeah, is pretty fun. That's yeah. pretty wow. fun. That's a lot of books. That's a lot of books, and, yeah. but it's also um, not just books anymore, right? Because what we started doing is realizing that we had 300. We now have 390,000 members. Uh, which are teachers and caregivers and program people serving kids in need in every conceivable setting. And when they join with us, they join our online community, we then, that really is an extraordinary asset. You know, that's a great muscle to flex. And so we're now able to listen to them and then chase down whatever they need, whether it's winter coats for their kids or uh, non-perishable foods or book bags or, you know, electronics, yeah. anything. You know, I imagine like our work with uh, childhood hunger, it's important to feed a child for the obvious reasons. A child's hungry, you want to get food to a child. But then, you know, as we got into this work, we learned a lot about all the different, um, you know, wonderful things that happen to kids once they are able to eat and their concentration, doing better at school, sick less often, so on. Um, can you sort of now that you're so far into 
uh, providing millions of books for kids. How would you think about the things that come from kids that are able to read that are more than just like passing the time in a pleasurable way? Like what are kids getting out of it right. from from this? And I think I think it's, you know, the kid gets self-confidence. They get employable skills. They you know, they it's good for our democracy. It's like there's just like your work, you know, it you start through a small window and then you realize the ripples are stunning. And I think important, too, to both sets of priorities, food and education, um, the ripples don't stop with the kid. Right. right? right. I mean, yeah. you know, when uh when a community solves these fundamental issues, the community is more stable. The, you know, there are expenses that are uh, that are that weigh on us at the local level, at the federal level, that go away if we get rid of some of these fundamental issues. And I mean, so, just the link to learning, I would oh, think, yeah, would be yeah. huge, right? Oh, of course. And do you measure course. that? Is that part of what you're yeah. communicating out to your network at all? How that's measured? Well, we we don't really see ourselves as a literacy organization. You know, we see ourselves as an access organization and as an equal education organization. So, uh, and part of that is because we are not in those classrooms. We are not in those Head Start programs or those WIC clinics or mm-hmm. any of the huge array after school programs. We even have barber shops that are signed up with us who are doing these great outreach programs. Uh, programs in their communities. And uh, and so it's this gigantic array of programs in that 390,000. And I think uh, uh, what we fundamentally know is that access to resources dramatically elevate what goes on in all of those settings. And so you know, what we know is that kids read more, they read better, they're more interested in reading in the long run. We also know that they show up, you know, to programs more often when there are resources available. There, are, You can recruit more volunteers. I mean, there's a huge impact just from making that mm-hmm. pipeline yeah. work. Yeah. Um, you've both been obviously off the charts successful. I mean, you've, you've found something you love to do. You've stayed at it for a long time. You've been incredibly successful. Let's talk a little bit about um, the secret sauce in terms of what are the ingredients of that success. I'm sure, Ashok, you've thought about it a long time because you've been able to, with very different restaurants, you've been able to replicate the success factor in each of them. Was it that way from the very beginning with you? Were there some hard lessons learned with the first restaurant? Uh, but what have, what you know, what's been your kind of the, the philosophy that's made you so successful? Uh, I don't think there is a secret sauce, and I think. Uh, like Kyle said, she found the passion. And, you know, I just hear her talk how passionate she is even after 25 years. It's just amazing. And in in, in my case, too, I mean, I've, I enjoyed it. I mean, it, it's, um, it's kind of giving people of an hour or two hours of a little bit of a peaceful time in an establishment they can, where they can nourish themselves. It's still amazing to when you think about the restaurant industry in this town in the last 10 years, Ten years yeah. five years even, Yeah, just what's happening. Uh-huh. And for you to be opening up restaurants that are so great, um, you know, I was just telling Ashok that a lot of times, you know, I'll eat out and I'll have a really great meal. But sometimes I'll have a meal and I just, I, on my way out, I want to make a reservation and come back. That doesn't happen too often. There's a lot of good options. And that's what happened when I was at Sababa. And it did make me question what is 
you say there's no secret sauce, but I think there must be. Uh, and it's probably more than your passion. It's got to be the way you talk to your staff. It's got to be the people you hire. There's got to be certain things you look for as you're putting together the team. Well, we're in the hospitality industry. All those things you said are very important, but I think I expect that in any case. So it's like, you know, you're going to hire the best people you can and who are very passionate. I remember at Sababa. Sababa is a work of two and a half years before it came through. And I said, when I opened Bindas right next to Sababa, and I said, Adeo has been there 20 years. And I said, I really want to open something different here. I see how people are enjoying the food and how it's, used to be I'm going to have my own appetizer and own, my own entree and now they want to share the food and, and that gets into the more of a conversation and um, and I said great and now what shall I do at Adeo, Adeo has been successful for 20 years but I was ready to make a change and I wanted a cuisine which will complement uh, the Indian street food which I was doing it so the only cuisine I could really think of was the Israeli cuisine, food of Israel, because the food of Israel has so much influence from um, all over Middle East and the Eastern Europe and Europe. And I said, okay, so I don't want to single out saying I'm serving Lebanese cuisine or Syrian cuisine or Palestinian cuisine. I said, in Israel, all these people have migrated to Israel and they bring their own culture and own food. And that's how Sababa came along. What does it mean? I, I looked it up and now I can't remember. It means right. something. Yeah, it, it means it's been cool, all is well. And, and there's a story about this how Sababa name came along too. So I was going to call it Maya, M-A-Y-A. And all is done, you know, graphic designs are ready. The sign is getting <laughs> ready. And I, <laughs> and I, I traveled to Israel and, and, you know, I have this culinary um, tour guides with me and we went to the market. And every place we're going, and she's saying, Sababa. I said, <laughs> Sababa, okay. So uh, my girlfriend is with me, and, and she said, what is she saying? And I said, she's saying, Sababa. She said, yeah, I know. What does that mean? So when we got comfortable with uh, the tour guide, her name is Annette, awesome uh, tour guide. And I said, Annette, can you tell me? It sounds really good what you're saying, uh, but what does it mean? She said, oh, it's it's always cool. Don't worry. Carefree. Sababa. I like it. I like it. Best. And I said, I love that. Okay, we are in Israel. All is cool. All is carefree. And I said, that's a great attitude to have. He says, but how did the name come about? He says, well, Arabs used to say that Sababa, and we adopted it. And I said, perfect. So I thought about 24 hours, and Andrea said to me, you need to name name this Sababa. And I said, I know it sounds good. And she kept saying, Sababa, Sababa. <laughs> <laughs> so you like the ring of it. And I yeah, I, I, I like the ring of it. And um, and I said, okay. So I called uh, my architect, the contractor. I said, okay, so we have to change the graphics. Oh, my goodness. And we have to change the sign. We're going to call it Sababa. <laughs> it's always more letters. And I said, understand, going to cost you a little more money to do the sign. I said, well, that's fine. Let's do it. Okay, <laughs> so that's how Sababa came about. That's great. So. And Bindas, which is next door uh, to Sababa, also means the same thing. Oh, it means cool, okay. carefree. And then I said, it's a great compliment for me. And that's how these two came together. So I'm getting the feeling that we all do important work at this table. We're all passionate about it, but you're having more fun than the rest of us. <laughs> I think I'm getting right. a little bit jealous just <laughs> listening. Um, Kyle, I want to hear about. Um, 
first book and, and what those ingredients of success have been for you? Because obviously 175 million books, 30 countries. And are you in India, by the way? Do you do We've done in some work in India. Yeah. We yeah. have done some work in India. Not enough. God knows, but yeah. we've we have gone over a couple of times. I think uh, about, I guess about twenty months ago, oh. we did about eight hundred and fifty thousand books just in, in Mumbai. I mean, did you take the books from here? Or no, were they, or no, you, or they from, were oh, they okay. were from India, and oh, okay. um, and we really try to keep uh, books locals, culturally yeah, relevant. Local, yeah. um, we can't do that every single time, yeah, but we yeah. try to. So, I the secret sauce, I guess, for first book, I think, is uh, kind of just being fearless, you know, and not, and, and by that I mean um, we take the wheels off the wagon pretty regularly and say every part of the program that we're running, is it running efficiently enough? Are the right people running it? Do we have the right skill blend? Um, what's the output versus the input? What do we need to build to be, to elevate the next stage? And so, uh, you know, so there's a rigor there. There, it there like is. In terms of there is. And Probably much the way like you'd run a business, right? You've got to have that rigor to make sure. That yeah. You're, yeah. I mean, it's you. You, you do need you do need people who share your vision, uh, working with you to execute that. Um, and, that's and and that's what yeah. we do, especially yeah. as you grow. Yes. Because things change. Right. Yeah. Right, so you right, can't right. have the same set of people with the same set of skills. That's doing right. the same job. Exactly. Yeah. And so so now we run the first book National Book Bank, the first book Marketplace, two different models, uh, a broad array of products. At the heart is books, but but we have a we have over six thousand SKUs in the marketplace. So. Wow. It's a growing list of things, all focused in those two instances, all focused on what are the resource needs? What do teachers and caregivers need in their hands to break through to equal education? And, and, um, but now we've launched a research arm called First Book Insights. We've launched um, a program called the First Book Accelerator to try to collapse the delay between the thought leaders and the field, the people who are working in the field, you know, the way that that came about, for example, is recognizing that, you know, if you're talking about an iPhone, for example, every nine or 10 months, the engineers at Apple come up with the brand new thinking and it moves out into the consumer market and then they watch consumer behavior and then they it feeds back up. And so there's this very tight cycle, cycle yeah. right? And uh, in in the world of education, especially for education for kids in need, that cycle takes about 20 years. So what we began to say is, what can we do to collapse that delay and move the thought leadership more quickly and then move the feedback back up uh, to the people who are really doing the breakout research and thinking? And so we so that's the accelerator in, in brief and you know so we keep launching uh, new programs holy form programs and so we're sort of have got the you know it's like a nonprofit conglomerate I guess at this when point. when Billy was teeing up the question I thought he was going somewhere else I thought he was going to say both of you are very successful but you must have had you know things happen that were not successful so I guess my my question to both of you would be. Uh, especially when you're roll, you know you're rolling out new programs you're rolling out new restaurants what had can you cite an example of like rolling something out that just didn't work and what you learned from it we have plenty of our own if we, we need few. to get the conversation started <laughs> we, we have a few <laughs> well you know i think if you don't fail 
on a, on a regular basis. Everyone it says that, but you're yeah, not, yeah, that's, you're not, no, that's right. I right. That's true. I, I really do think that. Yeah. And, and uh, so for us, you know, we ran a program for 15 years, you know, that fail fast idea. Not so much in this case, <laughs> but we ran it for 15 years where we had local affiliates and we kept trying. It's not more, it's not efficient. It's not working for this reason. We'd fix that. And then it was like the Rubik's Cube. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and finally, after 15 years, I, I think we were in 156 markets at that point, we pulled the plug. And that was a painful decision, but it was the right decision. And uh, so, yeah, we've had programs that we've wrestled with like an alligator. And, and you probably had people that didn't want you to pull the plug. Oh, yeah. So that's yeah. what makes it yeah. hard. Yeah. 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 But it's important. Tough decisions, but they're important, right? The lesson learned for you out of that was what? I think the lesson learned is uh, fearless evaluation. You know, um, you have to make it part of the creative process that you constantly are pushing each other when you're running a business. And it's no different on the nonprofit side. So you have to constantly be comfortable and make other people comfortable uh, evaluating everything you do, and uh, it'll it'll always push you to greater success. I think. So kind of this old-fashioned notion that the facts matter. Sharpen your pencil. <laughs> the right. facts matter. If you, when you take a step back on the tough decisions, I we have to do this. Sometimes I could be so you know emotionally tied to something and share a strength. But if I take a step back and I say, what's the best thing for the organization? That's the lesson for me when we make a decision like that. It's like you know what. Love this. It's been great. But if I really think about the value back to the organization yep. and the mission we're serving, sometimes you have to make those tough decisions. Right. So I have to force myself to do that. I think the other question that you always face is, you know, how do you close the gap in time from the moment you know you need to make a decision <laughs> till you actually yes. make it? Because there's lots that's of true. human factors involved. Of course. Sometimes you're yeah, thinking about other people's painful. feelings. And true. that's a tough one. I'm sure you've had to deal with that. Yeah, in all the time. Yeah, I so. agree with you. Yeah. Ashok, have you opened anything and, and closed it before we all knew about it in this town? <laughs> uh, no, I, actually, I've been fortunate. I mean, it's, um, you know, I opened 10 restaurants. I mean, I had Adeo and Badeo for 20 years. But I think um, for me, the time was right to change the concept. Um, so with something. How did, I'm curious about that. They were both still doing well, I think. But, so why, why did you think about changing them? Right. So. Um, Dining habits have changed. And, uh, you know, I mean, you live close to Cleveland Park. Um, and then the energy of got sucked out of uh, Cleveland the na- Park yes, in the yes. neighborhood. And they went to the 14th Street and totally different part true. of the city. So at that time, I was thinking, now, I don't want to leave Cleveland Park. I li- like it here. I know the neighbors. I get letters, number of them letters during uh, Christmas and Thanksgiving and Mother's Day and how much they enjoy coming to Adeo. And it'll be very painful personally to close something which has been part of the community for 20 years. How do I stay in business and yet continue to serve the community and yet not close the restaurant? So when I opened Bindas, became very successful. And then uh, in my case, I'm lucky enough to say, okay, I can do a new concept, excite the people, dining people. And look, I've changed... To Sababa, now, every single night, there isn't, I don't, somebody or the other says that, oh, we loved Adeo. And I said, but you didn't come here enough. (laughs) (laughs) He says, well, no, no, we did. (laughs) And then, and I said, okay. Uh, I said, but please do come, continue to come to Sababa. And I, so, so in my case, that's the case. I mean, like, you know, I've changed 
um, 701, I didn't change the name, didn't change the cuisine, but I changed part of 701 when I opened up. It was the first caviar and vodka bar in the city. And I thought, you know, I mean, world's capital, all these senators and congressmen will come and have caviar and champagne. wasn't the case. <laughs> <laughs> so I learned after three, four years, I changed that to a wine bar. You know, so I changed part of the restaurant yeah. with new trends and, and now, you know, put some private rooms there. So it's really I keep changing and keep reinventing it and keeping it fresh is, you know, what I've always done. And so uh, you're, you're going to be responsible for Cleveland Park coming back. Well, because I ho- it really got no to it, no, it became like there was nowhere to go. There's nowhere to go. And but now, I'm, now yeah, there's I mean, two great restaurants. I back mean, Sababa and Bindas both do well, and neighbors like it, and I hear it every night um, when I'm, you know, visiting my restaurants, and people appreciate it, and I appreciate them. I mean, they come there and you know support me, and it's something new, fresh, and so dining habits have changed, Debbie. It wasn't like before, you know. It's like, and like somebody said that to me. And I said, why don't you come here enough? You know, this is, I can get the grilled salmon with some sort of a sauce or a hamburger. A lot of places now. I said, I get it. I said, but you can't get Israeli food anywhere <laughs> in D.C. But So you have to come there, you know. Mm-hmm. So if something is not working, I tend to refresh it, change it, make it up to date, you know, keep trying it. And that's, I've done that, I think. Many times in my restaurants mm-hmm. over the years. So, Shok, you talked about um, you you create a space where people can be nourished and yes. have that hour or two, that kind of respite or that yeah. oasis from yeah. all the other pressures, which is obviously one way of serving the community. But you also get asked to serve in other ways, philanthropically and yes. charitably. Tell us about some of the things you're involved in, how you make those decisions. Yeah, those are the hard decisions, really. The reason is because I get asked a lot every single day. Every day, I bet. Every yep. day. And then... Um, so what you do is you do as much as you can and as much you can afford. We send out hundreds of gift certificates a year. Um, you know, the schools, the churches, or different causes. Then we support, we support, you know, share of strength. Yes, we we, we support Sips and Suppers. We support the James Beard Foundation. We support, there's so many organizations we support. Um, and then... What else happens is the people who come to work for me, if they are passionate about a cause and they say, I'm biking 50 miles, but can you support me if I do this? And they give their time. So you and want I to give, support your team? I, I do want to support. But look, if somebody comes and share for a general manager or, or, or a server and another employee says, can you help me with this? And if he or she is willing to put their time and efforts in there, and I think it's becomes my responsibility to support them. Like we raised, I think we gave 5% of our revenue for the day to Puerto Rico, uh, that relief fund. We send it to Red Cross. Uh, so there are so many, I mean, I don't want to name them all here. You know, thank God I am, you know, there's so many people doing so many wonderful things, including both of you here. I mean, it, you devoted your life to this. Um, so so we, we, we do a lot of these things. So there is there's no set formula. Um, that I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. So we do as much as we can, and we continue to do it. You know, I mean, we have, um, I mean, I can't even name so so many, you know, chefs and no. et cetera. And weren't you on the board of, I think, Arena Stage? Like, was that a personal, uh, is that a, a passion? How did you get involved with that? Um, 
I like theater. I yeah. like art. I don't go to these theaters enough, which I feel really bad about it. But I have a live theater every night in my restaurant. So right. <laughs> so <laughs> so but um, you think of it that way. Well, I do, but I, you know, it's like I do go to Arena and Shakespeare and Woolly Mammoth, but not enough to Woolly Mammoth. But I go to more to Shakespeare and uh, Arena. So oh, I was asked to uh, be on the board, and I was asked, and I said, I need to contribute. Okay, so and that's exactly how I became part of Arena Stage, and I'm been on the board for I don't know, maybe fifteen, twenty years now. I can't even remember how long. And it's it's good, you know. Community supports me. We need to be part of the community and supporting it back. Yep. You yep. know, I mean, I think we have enough problem in our, you know, uh, in the city itself. I mean, you're doing global work, both of you. But it's, uh, I, you know, one of the things is like when I was young, uh, on my birthdays, my mother would never bring a cake and cut it and make. You know, the, we always put special, okay. But what we put me to do was, she said, okay. You have to get up early today. It's my birthday. No, you have to get up early today. Well, okay, I knew the routine. Okay, so you get up early. You, she will prepare. She will prepare the food. Then she will take me to give it to the people who did not have enough to eat. So that was my birthday present yeah, for me. Okay. But that you know what? I, I still remember this. The value uh, that instilled in me. You know, there were times my parents had a lot. There were times they did not have a lot. My father was in business. It was good. It was really good. When it wasn't good, it wasn't so good. So, but this ritual never changed. So you get up early, you go feed the people who needs to be fed. Okay, you're blessed. So what I did was, you think, talking about Martha Taylor, my nephew, who was at that time, I think 11 or 12, and I took him to Martha's table. Okay, so we went to the... Uh, and I took him with me. I said, okay, you, you, you have a lot. There are the people who don't. So you need to see the other side of it. And so John Nathan, who was very helpful arranging it, I think she's on the board there. And we went, we sat in the truck, the delivery truck, the food truck. And we went, and I think it's by the capital. And he delivers food to everybody. And... Uh, that moment was very special to me, and I still remember that, mm. giving those education. And I think uh, we got to contribute. We all do in some way or mm -hmm. other. So. Uh, I'd love to ask you both a question about politics. Yeah. Um, because you, show talked about, um, I think, 701 being a place where Democrats and Republicans can both come together. And yeah. you know, by the end of the evening, they might be drinking together and talking together. Uh, I guess the question is, how political can you be or not be? Um, and I, I think, Kyle, in terms of nonprofits, you know, the answers underlying a lot of the issues we care about are fundamentally political answers. But I know at Share Our Strength as a nonprofit organization, we certainly can't be partisan. We can be political in terms of advocating that people get involved and that they participate. But we're not a we're a bipartisan organization. If we're partisan in any sense at all, we're bipartisan. I'm, I'm guessing the same is true of first book, but you probably have a desire to be political. And Ashok, I'm curious, do you have to kind of just suppress your own political views because you've served such a broad base? But let's start with you, Kyle. How do you think about that? Well, I think we're in the same position that Share Our Strength is in. We, uh, um, you know, a lot of what we all work on are things that I believe fundamentally are not partisan at all, right? I mean, they may be, there may be, uh, idealistic, you know, uh, differences uh, as to how you approach these problems. Uh, but I think that 
it's not it, it doesn't necessarily fall on party line. Um, obviously, things have gotten pretty contentious these days. And D.C. is uh, a sadder place for it. I think I was listening to your description about Democrats and Republicans having dinner and drinking together and talking. And that sounds like old D.C. to me. And no, actually, you'll be surprised. Actually, uh-huh. Kyle, it still happens. Great. Uh, it doesn't Great. happen to that Extent, uh-huh. yeah, that extent. Yeah. It used to. I mean, I remember. Or at the highest levels, maybe. No, maybe no. it's not. Ha- it is still happening at the well, high. Yeah, I mean, I, I look. I, I see that in Oval Room, Bibiana, Seven O One. I mean, I can tell you all. You know, I don't want to name all the restaurants, but it happens. And mm-hmm. and and you know, they look. I've seen many times. I don't want to give names yet. People sitting together and eating, and end of the day, sure. we're friends and hugging, and it still happens. And I think. Uh, for me is, um, and I've I've seen it in last, you know, especially being seven hundred one and Bombay Club close proximity to the White House, and I think people who come in the government, I think we all have have our own beliefs. Okay, whether we're on the left, on the middle, on the right, but as a restaurateur, you know, I'm on. You walk into the door, you're allowed to have your piece, nourish your body, and how do you know the person he's he or she's coming with this? not conservative or liberal or whatever, and, and they're trying to change each other's mind and what comes out of those two hours conversation. I think the good people in both sides, okay, and I strongly believe that, and I think, um, yes, it has become more partisan. I have to say that. I mean, from seeing it, yeah, it's very obvious. It's become more partisan, but I think I still see people dining together, talking together, and, and you know, the two minutes conversation or 10 minutes conversation, you know, it happens. And I think, uh, I, I hope it happens more. That's mm-hmm. one the of restaurants. the most helpful thing I've heard. Yeah, no, that life. is encouraging. And <laughs> restaurants yeah. have, as you, as we all know, have been in the news lately for not serving mm-hmm. certain people mm-hmm. whose politics they don't agree with. You don't strike me as sure as somebody that would ever do that. Billy, I don't believe that. And I, I think uh, we, we may hold the strong beliefs about certain things. But I, again, my point is, how do we know that certain people we don't want to serve has a friend who is a liberal, okay? And who they want, might actually be working something out, right? Y- they yes, might be that's like correct. trying to understand each other. Yeah, that's trying to say, okay, look, these policies are wrong. This policy is good. Why don't you listen to me? And something may good, and, and you may be able to uh, make a point or convince somebody and say, look, how about this? And looking, I think, I think we. We go, we'll go the wrong path if we start dictating in establishments in the restaurants or grocery stores or whatever, not making cakes for people just because of their different beliefs. I, I mm-hmm. actually don't agree with that. It feels like, if anything, it could make us more divided That's correct. rather than yeah, less. I mean, I, having I, I get the symbolic you know, I, impulse I think, to, yeah. to make I mean, a point. Sharing your food, sitting in a social setting or having a drink brings us together, not necessarily divides us, you know. Um, in, you know in the conversation we have over food or drinks or in a, or a cup of coffee, and I think it brings us together. You're spending the 10, 15, an hour together and thinking, okay, may, there may be a legitimate point in this, yeah. okay, and what I can take away from this. And I think... Um, you know, but it's good to hold strong beliefs. But I think um, in, in social places, we need to be respectful of each other. And I think if we really become so divided, God, I mean, then there'll be Republican restaurants and Democrat yeah. restaurants. Right. <laughs> no, right. You know, <laughs> right. <laughs> you know? Um, 
Well, you know, the, the point, Cal, that I was making about the politics is the challenging part of this, I guess, from the point of view of the work we do at Share Our yeah. Strength and and I think Kyle does it first book is, you know, at, at the end of the day, at least we believe, I don't want to speak for you, Kyle, is, you know, charity alone can't solve these problems. It does take public policy. Mm-hmm. It does take government. And so there are, you know, you do have to have political change to be successful. And I think there's things that we as nonprofits can do that the government can't do in terms of innovating as first book has so brilliantly, taking risks, being closer to the people you serve and learning from that. Uh, and then when you have a great idea, you hope that it'll, ha- it'll have the public support so that it can reach everybody That's because I, yeah. nonprofits really have the, the resources to reach everybody. Yeah, it is going to take everybody. And I love hearing this, the story about the, the charitable support you're giving. Uh, and, you know, because it is going to take business, it is going to take government, it is going to take social enterprise and traditional nonprofits. And like the... the uh, thing that I worry about sometimes these days is that uh, in addition to the the partisan divide that we're navigating, you know, in, in a lot of ways, in a much more catastrophic way than we ever have before, I think, uh, or have, you know, in the last, I don't know, 100 years as a country, I think... Um, I also think that although there are categories where there's progress being made in the social sector, social issues, the truth is I think more categories than that, the problems are outpacing the solutions right now. And I love this kind of conversation, frankly, because I think um, we're not, we all, especially in the social sector, in the nonprofit world, we all have that white knuckle death grip on our own steering wheels, and we're not given the bandwidth to reach over and, you know, and hold hands with the other big, you know, and really think of creative, great big solutions. And I I was thinking about this. I was lucky enough to, to go to China uh, last year, and I was thinking, you know, think of the conglomerate, think of the behemoth that we as a country have built to get Coca-Cola into rural China, you know, and yet we're in a position now where I think in the nonprofit arena, we are way too, uh, you know, we're in silos and because the bandwidth doesn't permit it. Let me give you an example of two grants that we've made over the years that uh, helped us get get out of the silos. One was, uh, this this is your kind of bookended, one was 25 years ago. We made a fifty thousand dollar grant to First Book, I was huh? even, though, fit that even in. though we're not an organization that has really that much to do with books. But we were so enamored of their leadership, of Kyle's work, Peter. of Peter Gold's yeah. work, who yeah. awesome. was on the Share Strength board. That it was an early seed grant to say, you know, we have confidence, and hopefully, you can use this to get started. Great. And as I mentioned to you, Ashok, uh, we just made our first grant to an organization in India, in India yeah. uh, called Akshaya Patra, Patra, which works on childhood hunger issues. And actually, yeah. um, I think in India they have a program somewhat similar to the U.S. where there's actually the government is reimbursing for school meals. 60 percent. Yeah. We're 100% here. Oh, okay. That we we reimburse for meals, but in India. And and we specifically were looking for and were very surprised to find um, an organization that was doing some comparable work to what we're doing here, aligning with our strategy. So... Um, 60% exciting. reimbursement. Yeah. yeah. And we had, you know, we, re- they were not on our, um, 
uh, radar at all. But y- have you heard of them? Because they're pretty. I, I they're was, pretty well known. It I seems was like Gilly before the show, and I think they were some of these people were here uh, maybe three four months ago, and I think I was introduced to them um, at the restaurant. And they're they're doing the 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 biggest most expansive. Uh, and have the biggest goals of any country we've seen on any school feeding program outside of the United States to get meals to kids through through school meals. So, we're, so we're super excited about as that. As we grow in India, Ashoki, we may need you to be our guide and our mentor and help us, certainly That's when pretty, we I mean, make our first I, trip there. Here's what I'm excited about, and I've told Billy this, because I, I to me, long term, this is where I think Sheriff Strength can make the biggest impact. We can we can give a grant there. We can double our grant. Right. We did a hundred thousand dollars there this year. We could triple it. We could quadruple it. But if we could export any of our model of how we raise money in the United States by organizing around the restaurant industry to generate sustainable in, in, money in, in, in India, India. Yeah. then we would have something to be pretty you know even excited more excited about. Yeah. about. And and in and India, obviously you know has a cuisine. Yeah. And not all countries. They all have a cuisine, but not all countries have a cuisine that is known and is a big revenue generator the way it is in India. Mexico's another one, Peru. There are a number sure. of countries, but India is one that could be, I think, I don't know anything about it. I've never been there. I'm going to go next year, but could be organized around some of these issues um, and, and you know, inspire restaurants, inspire chefs to help rebuild the community. I, I think they do a lot of those work there already in India, but I read about it. I have been out of the country, God, you know, almost 35, 40 years now. Do you not go back I, I, You know, I was telling Billy, I, I used to go back when my parents were alive, and every opportunity I got, I would get on the plane and go, even for five days, four days, and now my trips are every couple of years. So, you know, you lose that connection when your parents yeah. pass away. So it's sure. But when, when you start to do that, you know, you know, hopefully I'll put you through to some right people and help you there, and hopefully they will be helpful. Yeah, okay. I have a feeling the calls are going to get returned faster if it's not Billy or Debbie, but a show <laughs> calling. It's just, just a feeling. Well, I think so you may get a call faster than me. <laughs> we, may, we may try yeah. that. Thank you so much well, thank for you being for, with thank us. You thank, you. thank you both. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, Kyle, it was Kyle. a pleasure to be with you. No, nobody knows Great social entrepreneurship <laughs> uh, better than you, uh, here well, or anywhere you else. you kicked and, us uh, off. We really well, wouldn't I don't know be that we here you off. I, don't, I don't think that's true. I think it was just a small piece. But uh, what you've done for kids around the country and around the world is really inspiring to all of us. So Team effort. Thanks, Kyle Zimmer. Thanks. Thanks and so Debbie much. Shore. Thanks. Thanks as always Thank for you. being yeah, with great us. Great show. Thank I'm you. I'm Billy Shore. Add passion and stir. Add passion and stir is distributed by District Productive. Our senior producer is Carrie Thompson. Our executive producer is Peter Ogburn. Add Passion and Stir is the creation of Billy Shore, Debbie Shore, and Paul Woody Woodhull. I'm Billy Shore. You're listening to Add Passion and Stir from Share Our Strength.